Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, we've been in a series uh, where we've, been, we've kind of been exploring how do we resist rage uh, in a culture that is actually quite full of outrage. And um, our particular context or what we have in mind as we've been through this exploration is the context of outrage surrounding politics, uh, the handling of the pandemic, uh, the part that social media and news outlets kind of play and, and other forces play in like contributing to uh, the overall sense of outrage, but also a very personal sense Uh, of outrage. As I've talked with people, um, I can just kind of feel the temperature rising in terms of just like, uh, there's just a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot to be concerned about. There's a lot to consider and a lot to navigate. Um, And and so we've kind of been thinking about how do we resist, how do we navigate these things faithfully while resisting outrage? Um, I'm convinced that one of the most prophetic things that Christians can do in this cultural moment Uh, is to resist rage, uh, to be peacemaking people, like Daniel talked to us about last week. Now, this was originally supposed to be a two-week series. Um, It has ballooned, I think, to week five, and I have one more thing I want to say next week. So it'll be six weeks. Um, So we missed the mark in terms of the planning process of how long this will take, Um, but I think it's really important. So um, whenever you talk about rage or anger or the call of Christians to be peacemakers, uh, there is always one episode in the life of Jesus that inevitably comes up, and that is when Jesus enters the temple and begins to turn the tables over, right? It does not matter what context I'm in, every single time we talk about peace, peacemaking, uh, like resisting rage, what is the role of anger, all of that. People are always, yes, but Jesus went into the temple and tossed the tables. Um, and actually, this story is told in all four Gospels. And so it's an important story. It's a significant story. And I think understanding this passage will actually help us in understanding uh, the role of righteous anger in our lives. You see, the danger when we talk about resisting rage is to think that Christians are just supposed to be quiet, keep to themselves, say nothing, um, you know, kind of always be the one to say, you know, there's two sides to every issue, and just kind of like faithfully float in the middle is oftentimes how we think that Christians are supposed to be when we talk about peacemaking. Uh, I think this morning's passage will help us. Um, And so let's look at this important story in the life of Jesus. Again, it's told in all four Gospels, uh, but I want to look at Mark's telling of this uh, this event, this episode in Jesus' life. So it's found in Mark chapter 11. You can turn there, you can click there, you can follow along on the screen. I'll begin reading with verse 15. Uh, Let me say this before I go to the Scriptures. Sometimes it's a good idea. This used to be a thing. I'm going to sound so old. Can I sound really old for a few moments? It used to be a thing that people would bring their Bible to church, and then as the preacher was saying really great things, as preachers inevitably do, uh, they would mark and take notes in their Bible and things like that. Uh, There is a digital facsimile of that that you can do, but consider bringing your Bible to church and making notes in it. Okay, so there it is, because that's how it was. That's how it used to be. All right. 
so now that you've all clicked there, um, actually none of you are even clicking there. You're just like, it'll be up on the screen. So, um, so here it is, Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I think it's important to get one thing out of the way right away when we consider this passage, and that is that this is not a case or an example of Jesus losing his temper uh, and then, oops, before you know it, tables have turned over and a whip has been made. Uh, the whip is not included in Mark's telling. It is mentioned in John's telling. Uh, but this is not, uh, this is not a, like a, a case of just losing a temper. This is an intentional, uh, calculated act where Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And so the task for us as gospel readers and as Christians reading this now centuries later, it is kind of our task to discern what was Jesus up to? What is he trying to say or do uh, in this episode? And so uh, what I want to submit to you today is that with this unique action, this unique episode in Jesus' life, Jesus was actually building on a long tradition of prophetic performance. Uh, let me say what I, well, let me tell you what I mean. From time to time, the Old Testament prophets would move from prophetic words to prophetic theater in order to demonstrate and to make their point. For example, the prophet Jeremiah wore an ox's yoke around his neck to perform a picture of the state of Israel in their sin. So he's essentially, he, he go, this prophet literally walked around with an ox's yoke around his neck as a way of saying, Israel, you are, you are captured, you are enslaved by your own sin. It's a pretty good picture. Uh, even weirder than that, and to show you the Bible isn't, in fact, boring, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, laid on his side for a year and baked bread using human poo as fuel. Ew. Okay. He did that in order to be a sign that the nation of Israel would eat unclean things when they were exiled because of their sinfulness, okay? Now, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Pretty crazy, right? And so you have this kind of tradition, this prophetic tradition, or this tradition of prophetic theater becoming the point that you're trying to make. And so following in this line of prophetic theater, Jesus comes into the temple in order to show that the temple system had become corrupt and that he himself is the fulfillment of everything the temple represents. That is, the temple was to be a place where heaven and earth overlapped. It was to be the home of the divine presence and a place of sacrifice. And by coming in and showing critique or judgment of the temple, Jesus is saying, I am in fact where all the divine presence resides, right? 
for he is fully God and fully human, that thus heaven and earth overlap in me, and I will become the sacrifice. Are you with me? And so Jesus is, in fact, showing a critique as a way of saying something new is coming, and he's doing it through an act of prophetic theater. And so, in other words, it wasn't just that Jesus got angry and then lost his temper. Now, that said, Jesus certainly was angry. Jesus certainly was frustrated. And I've mentioned uh, that this, this story has several layers, and so let's keep digging. Yeah, this particular episode in Jesus' life happened in the temporal, temple, but the temple, uh, as you may know, was made up of all kinds of different parts. And so this is actually happening in what's called the Court of Gentiles. Uh, it's the opening court when you first enter the temple area. It was a place where everyone was welcome to be. Men, women, children, Jews, and Gentiles were all allowed to be inside the Court of Gentiles. This is where actually sacrifices were sold, that they would then, they would buy the animal for a sacrifice. They would then go into the inner parts of the temple to offer the sacrifice. So this is kind of the opening courtyard. This is where all the buzz is. The temple is simply, is not just a church you go to once a week. It is quite literally central to the life of Israel. And so in this outer court, the court of Gentiles, it was where everyone was, where the sacrifices were sold. It is the largest, most open area of the temple. Uh, and this, being a place where everyone was allowed, meant that throughout the rest of the temple, there were some who were not allowed. And so, just keep that in mind. We've got to know this is happening in the court of Gentiles. So then Jesus comes in, and during his critique of the temple, he says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. Now, on the surface, it seems that Jesus is saying that instead of selling stuff, you should make sure the church is all about prayer, which is quite amazing that in this moment, Jesus knew that thousands of years later, uh, from this moment, churches would open gift shops and bookstores in their foyers. And he was warning them, no, you shouldn't do that, right? You can sense my sarcasm. Uh, anytime, that it is, uh, anytime that it says it is written uh, simply means that Jesus is quoting from what we know as our Old Testament. And so to understand how Jesus is using this passage, we need to go back to where this passage is first used or first come, we first come across it so that we can understand the context of the original passage. And this particular quote is from the prophet Isaiah in what we know as chapter 56, which begins by calling all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, to maintain justice and do what is right. Included in this chapter of Isaiah is specific instruction for Jews to not prevent Gentiles from worshiping the Lord. Did you hear that? In Isaiah chapter 56 is specific instruction for Jews not to prevent Gentiles from worshiping the Lord. And so, in fact, I want to read uh, Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8 to you so we can get a larger kind of context of what this is actually talking about, the passage that Jesus quotes. Here it is. Isaiah 56, beginning with verse 6, says... And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and who hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Jesus, God is saying, the foreigners who honor me, I will bring to my holy mountain. Okay? 
I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Thus says the Lord, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those who are already gathered. Whoa. So remember, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. You've grown up. You are God's people. This is the central to our, your identity. And here the prophet Isaiah, in what we know as chapter 56, is giving a word from the Lord saying, those from outside of the fold will be brought in. Their sacrifices will be accepted. They, they will be called, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And if you were an ancient Israelite, you would go, oh, no way. Right? So, Part of the prophetic critique and part of the, what the prophetic theater is critiquing is a racial disparity in the temple worship because Gentiles were not allowed to offer sacrifices anywhere else in the temple. Are you with me? Now, don't worry, there's more, okay? So Jesus is also upset that there are certain people being exploited as part of the temple worship. In this portion of the temple, as I mentioned, the court of Gentiles is where sacrifices were purchased, but only the sacrifices could be purchased and the temple tax paid with only one kind of currency. So there needed to be an exchange of currency. As people were coming from all over, the temple tax could only be paid in this currency, so currency needed to be exchanged. Money needed to be exchanged, okay? And as is having just come from a foreign country, spending some time in Mexico, I know that as is typical in such transactions, it's very easy to be taken advantage of when you are working with a currency with which you are not familiar, okay? And if you've ever done some traveling around the world, you know this to be true. You know what a United States dollar is, how much it's worth, what it should be able to buy, but when that is turned into shekels or when that's turned into shillings or pesos uh, or pounds or any other kind of currency, you be, things become less clear, right? And you're worried, am I really getting what this is worth, okay? What was happening in the temple is money exchanges would be subject to large fees and taxes, and those that were exchanging the money were exploiting those who had come to worship. So people were being exploited financially as part of their act of worship, and Jesus would have nothing of it. He says, this is an injustice. So essentially what Jesus is critiquing in this prophetic theater is injustice at the temple. Of course, injustice never happens in modern churches, right? Jesus is coming with prophetic theater to critique injustice at the temple. And so we go back to this idea of what is righteous anger and how can we learn, what can we learn from Jesus, particularly this episode in Jesus's life. And and why is it that people always bring up Jesus tossing the temple tables when we talk about anger or resisting rage or the call to be peacemakers? It seems to me that most folks want to resist the call to be peacemakers and have permission to get angry about whatever they want to get angry about because Jesus tossed the temple tables. Are you with me? Right. That's right. I got a, I got a crowd here. That's right. 
so this, isn't this true? Like we want to justify whatever we want to be angry about because of this one episode in Jesus's life. But let's take, let's take a posture of humility. Let's seek to learn from the scriptures. Let's understand the context and say, what is Jesus upset about? Because yes, he is angry. What is he angry about? The witness of the gospels show us that Jesus got angry about matters of injustice. This is what Jesus would not stand for. Jesus did not get angry in the sense that he held personal vendettas, that he refused forgiveness for those who harmed him. No, what we see is that Jesus got angry usually with religious leaders and systems when those systems weren't embodying God's shalom in the way that they were designed to do or the way that they were supposed to do. And so this morning, if my anger leads me to hold a grudge, if my anger causes me to lose my temper, if my anger causes me to bring harm toward others, there is little use for it in the world. In fact, it is harmful and damaging. But if my anger, my frustration, causes me to fight for the rights of the oppressed or seek to correct injustice, then, the ang- then anger can actually be a generative force for good in the world. Which is to say that Christians, as the people of God, are not just to take a posture of, oh, things are just how they are. God will make it better in the end. No. The posture of Christians toward the world is to be one of grace, of forgiveness, of patience, and of righteous anger seeking to participate with the work of God to make injustices go away, to set them right, right? Some people uh, pastorally or like anecdotally as a pastor, I've often talked to people and one of the key theological questions that people have is just like, what is God up to, right? Like, what is God up to in the world? My life is a wreck. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The economy, this, that, racial tensions, political divisions. Like, what is God doing? Where was God? Where is God? And my consistent answer is that what God is up to in the world is seeking to make things right, and he's looking for partners. This is why I think Paul, the apostle, gives instructions in Ephesians chapter 4 that says, in your anger, do not sin. Paul knows very good and well that we're going to be angry. And there will be times when we're angry, right? And there will be times when we are angry and it's a personal thing. It has nothing to do with injustice in the world. It has everything to do with injustice done toward you right? It's not, it's not a system. It's not something intangible or, or kind of hard to get a grasp on. It's this person said this, did this, harmed me, wronged me, didn't do this. What should I do? In those moments, we are angry and that's okay. We are to move that anger and, and allow it to heal so that we don't just perpetuate that anger in the world. You with me? So this is why the the call to forgiveness, personal forgiveness, is so essential. But then Jesus is also calling us to take that anger at that which is unjust in the world and move it for a generative force of good in the world. So in your anger, do not sin. Paul knows very good and well that we are going to get angry, 
but we aren't to let our anger lead us into sinful action. So when Jesus, in fact, again, look at the life of Jesus. Jesus had every right to be angry at those who oppressed him, who harmed him, who quite literally beat him. But what do we see on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus responds with forgiveness. And so we have in the life of Jesus, when he's personally harmed, personally, he, he heals the anger through forgiveness and other means. And there's a lot of nuance there that I don't have time for. But when we look at religious systems and religious leaders that are supposed to bring the shalom of God into the world and instead are participating or perpetuating injustice, that's when Jesus gets angry and seeks to correct the action. And so let me say, church, may we take caution that when Jesus shows anger, he shows it toward the religious people and the religious systems that are meant to protect the vulnerable but have exploited them, meant to love the outcast but have further cast them out, meant to demonstrate the hospitality of God but have only displayed their own bias and privilege. Or, as Father Richard Rohr says, Jesus only excludes the excluders. Yo. <laughs> um, let me give you an example of this righteous anger. Anger being churned into a force for good in the world so that we can kind of put some legs on this, this message and then I'll be done. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. His calls for racial equality and reconciliation had proven too disruptive to the status quo, and he was killed. Jane Elliott, a third-grade teacher in Iowa, was so angered and upset by what she saw, she could not believe that someone fighting for equality would be faced with such hatred as to be killed that she decided that she would help the children in her classroom to understand this injustice. So the next day, April 5th, 1968, Jane Elliott decided to conduct her now famous blue-eye, brown-eye experiment. On Tuesday morning, she told her class that blue-eyed children were smarter, uh, better behaved, and more worthy than brown-eyed children. She marked brown-eyed children with a collar so that they might be denied certain privileges that she gave to blue-eyed children, such as recess time, classroom seating location, and having seconds at lunch. Uh, in just one day, she watched as blue-eyed children who were once kind and considerate turned into cruel children as they saw themselves as superior. She also saw brown-eyed children who had once been confident show signs of self-doubt when taught and treated as inferior. These changes happened just in the course of a single day. The next day, everything was reversed. The blue-eyed children were marked and denied privileges that brown-eyed children were given, and the brown-eyed children were then treated as superior and better. It was an extremely controversial experiment for a teacher in Iowa in the 60s. 
but she wanted her students to know what it felt like to inhabit a world where they were mistreated based on a physical characteristic that was completely out of their control. This experiment nearly cost Jane Elliott everything. She lost friends. Her co-workers refused to speak to her. Her own children were physically and emotionally abused because their mom was a, quote, an inward lover. Her parents lost their business. In the short term, it cost her almost everything. In the long term, Jane Elliott went on to become a global teacher on diversity and an advocate for the equal treatment of all races. Several years after her blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment, she developed another experience. Speaking to large groups of mostly white people, she would say, if you would like to be treated exactly as a brown or black person is treated in our society, please stand up. Pretty provocative invitation. Inevitably, no one in the room would stand. And so at this point, she would say, quote, nobody here is standing. And that says very plainly that you know what's happening. You don't want it, but you don't want it for you. And what I want to know is why you're so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen to others, end quote. I don't know how Jane Elliott's experiment lands on you. I, I watched a documentary about this experiment and was quite jarred, actually, with how she was treating children in the classroom to try to get the point across. It was uh, jarring to see. But the overall thing of knowing by experience what it is to inhabit a world where you are treated differently based on a characteristic upon which you have no control, I think says a lot. And I think that's an example of her taking her anger and frustration and seeking to do the best that she knew how at the time to be a force for good, to generate good in the world. This is what righteous anger is, church. Uh, in fact, oftentimes when we find ourselves the most angry, it reveals something that we most love. We are angry about the thing that is most important to us. And, and so we could take that anger and spit it out as outrage on social media, right? Or we could take that anger and seek to churn it into a force for generative good in the world. And I think for me, what the difference is between anger that is harmful and anger that is righteous is what we do with it when we're angry. What we do with it. Because again, the options are, I can get angry, I can, I could you know, drop the mic on social media, I could say something to show that, that these people aren't as aware or don't have this information or they're not as woke as this or that or whatever. Or I could say there's this injustice. I've come to see it. It stirs something in me. Now I want to be a force for good in the world. I think I can speak for Scott, our impact director, that if you have any ideas of how we as a church might help to 
seek or make right or participate with God in addressing injustice in our world, we are always looking for ideas of how we might be able to do that. Is that right, Scott? Amen. It's right. <laughs> That's right. And so the idea is, what do we do with that? I want to leave you with the words of Scott Sauls from his book, A Gentle Answer. Uh, the book, A Gentle Answer, has been a helpful uh, resource for me in this series. I, I commend it to you. Um, sometimes I'm nervous to commend a book because then when you read it, you might think that I agree just with everything wholeheartedly that is said. Um, that's usually not the case with most books. Um, but I, found, I have found this book to be very helpful. It's a book called A Gentle Answer. Scott Sauls has this to say, quote, Anger reveals the things that we love the most. We only get angry when something or someone we love is threatened, oppressed, or abused. So when we love what is good, we naturally abhor things like abuse, theft, disease, depression, and death. We hate injustice, poverty, dishonesty, and spin. We hate seeing children neglected, spouses abandoned, the elderly and the poor forgotten. We hate these things because we get angry about them, because we feel protective of the excellent, pure, lovely, and praiseworthy things that they threaten or contradict. It's a holy kind of anger. It's anger compelled by shalom, which is the wise and healthy vision for the world as God intended it to be. It is the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. So church, as we think about resisting rage, I want us to know there is a place for righteous anger. It is anger that motivates us to work for shalom. Are you with me? Oh Lord, would you help us to navigate all the nuances, all of the details of what this might mean in our lives. We recognize, God, that in a world as complex as ours, there very rarely are easy or straightforward answers. And yet today, God, as the people of God, who are committing ourselves over the last several weeks to resist rage, to be a prophetic witness, that our lives might be a prophetic theater for a world lost in outrage, that the church would be a place of peacemakers, those not lost in the rage. And yet, Lord, knowing what it means to see injustice and respond, to, to be moved because of your spirit inside of us, to be moved by things that are not right in the world and wanting them to be right, to be set back. And so, Lord, help us to know what it means to be participants in the kingdom of God, not just benefactors of the kingdom of God. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that we have benefited from this thing called God's kingdom. But Lord, may we also work to embody your kingdom. May we also be ambassadors of your kingdom. 
to not be afraid to call out injustice when we see it, to not be afraid to take on a posture of humility so that we might learn and hear from others, to not assume that we have all the answers. So God, help us in these endeavors as we seek to work out what it means to be your people in this time and place. God, I want to take this moment to also pray for our life groups where it's very difficult in a setting like this to think about nuance, to hear different perspectives, to work this out. And so, God, you've gifted us with this model of getting together among smaller groups of people that are like-minded and, and seeking to live out the truth. And so I pray for our life groups in this moment, that, that they would in fact be a place where we could experience genuine connection with others. But also that there would be, that there would be laughter and there would be joy and there would be catching up with each other's lives, but that there would be moments in each of our gatherings where we would really begin to seek to work out what does this mean? What does this really mean for us? And how might we respond in obedience? For Lord, it is our desire to live out the kingdom of God. And so help us, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's gather around the Lord's table today with the invitation to not only just receive the goodness and the grace of God and be reminded of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, but may we also come ready for the Lord to speak to us, for it is in the bread and the wine that we um, meet with God and that God meets with us. And so, gracious God, would you meet us in this place?